Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 807 with Heather Hansen. Heather, we brought her back because she's so good. If you want to have a little bit more confidence and more credibility, have more people advocate for you, Heather brings the goods. You'll learn one, the simple mindset shift that builds your confidence. Two, why you're already more qualified than you think. And three, the master key to winning over more advocates. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to bits that we've mentioned here, please Pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP807 and check out some of our goodies like the full text transcripts, the 10 days to winning at work email course, and so much more over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Heather's story. Heather Hansen helps leaders, sales teams, and high-powered individuals master persuasion and build credibility with diverse stakeholders. She gives leaders the tools to make the case for their ideas, their products, and their leadership. With these tools, they change others' perspectives and help them to believe. Heather has worked with companies like Google, LVMH, Savitry, the American Medical Association, and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, and has lectured at Harvard Business School, Stanford Law School, Berkeley, the University of Pennsylvania, and has appeared on media such as the Today Show, CNN, NBC, and much more. Heather's the author of the best-selling book, The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself, which Publishers Weekly calls a template to achieving personal and career goals, and is the host of the Elegant Warrior podcast, an Apple Top 100 career podcast. Her most recent book is Advocate to Win, 10 Tools to Ask for What You Want and Get It. Big thanks to Heather for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Heather. Heather, welcome back to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Pete, it's always so nice to talk to you. Well, I'm excited to chat as well, particularly about some of your new insights with credibility that you're teaching. But first, we need to hear a little bit about your childhood speed reading backstory. (laughs) What's the scoop here? I didn't know that I was a fast reader when I was a kid. I just read how I read. But they started taking me out of class all the time and bringing me to this room where I would sit by myself and it would be dark. And on the wall, they would put up words and sentences faster and faster and faster until I told them that I couldn't keep up with what they were putting up on the wall. (laughs) And it turned out I was a really fast reader. And then they would give me tests on whether or not I was actually comprehending what I was reading. And I was for the most part. So I've used that skill, which I didn't realize that I had throughout law school. It allowed me to get through the legal briefs a whole lot faster. And now I love to read, and I'm really fortunate that I can read a lot of books in a year. 
That's good. That's you know, I'm just imagining this scene like from the X Files with a two way mirror <laughs> and people with lab coats saying things like, "My God, she's off the charts." Was it like that? <laughs> I don't know what they were doing in the other room, but I know they would give me a box of snow caps candy when I was done, so I was a happy camper. <laughs> okay, excellent. You are rewarded. So, do we know what kind of speed we're talking here in terms of like a words per minute rate? I really don't remember. I just remember that they were quite impressed with the speed at which I read. And I know that now, I mean, I average about 200 books a year. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So let's just, I'm just going to play it out a little bit. So if you have like, I don't know, a 300 page business book, how much time you spend into knocking that out? See, it really depends because like, I just finished a book that I loved. It was called Golden. Uh, Let me think how that the subtitle is. About silence? It's um, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise is the subtitle. And I loved that book, but I was also underlining it and making a lot of notes in the captions. So that book probably took me a weekend. And that was about, I want to say it was like 400 pages, but lots of footnotes. And then I would go to the footnotes and sometimes I would look up what was in the footnotes. And I really loved that book. Plus I had the authors on my podcast. Yeah, we did too. (laughs) It was like a little bit of homework. I read a lot of fiction. I read fiction at night on my Kindle and those I can go through pretty quickly. Sometimes I finish a book a night, depending on the book and depending on how good it is. Again, you know, some of the books you can just rip through. Others are a little bit more time consuming. Well, well, this is not even our main topic, but I'm just so fascinated. (laughs) We've (laughs) talked about speed reading twice before with guests on, on the matter. And it seems like this is just something you did naturally as opposed to a skill or thing that you learned. But I'm curious, do you actually, I guess they call it sub vocalize, read the words inside a voice in your head or not? I think I do. I mean, I only know how I read, right? I never tried to learn this. I know that some speed readers skim, like they have a certain method of doing it. I think I read the words inside my head, but I don't really know any other way. Even back then, no one ever said, how do you read? They were just sort of interested in the pace at which I read. And they didn't, I think, believe that I was really reading. And that's why they started testing me in the first place, because that comprehension piece, it was a big deal to them. Hmm. Well, fascinating. Well, <laughs> well, that just sets the stage for listeners that that Heather is a super genius no, and no, everything no. that you're about to say is is golden. <laughs> Not even close. And I'll tell you something else. So I've written two books and I bemoan the fact that I can't write as well as some of the authors that I like to read. And so we all have our strengths. Mine is reading. And hopefully, I, I hope that one of my strengths is taking what I've read and interpreting it for audiences that don't want to read it or don't feel up to reading it in a way that they can understand. That's one of the things that I would love to be able to say I do well. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's hear about some of your interpretation summaries and insights when it comes to the topic of credibility. You've been doing a lot of work and research on this lately. What's the scoop in terms of what you're up to? So, you know, as we've discussed in the past, my thing is I teach people how to advocate for their ideas, their businesses, themselves, whether it's for raises, promotions, new jobs, and to ultimately turn the people around them into their advocates. And I do that using what I call the three C's of an advocate, but one of those C's is credibility. And I have found time and time again, the other two are curiosity and compassion. But if you don't have credibility, P, you can't win. You know, in the courtroom, I was a trial attorney for many years. In the courtroom, if the jury didn't believe me, 
I could be prepared. I could be curious. I could be compassionate. I could be nice. They might like me. But if they didn't believe me, I couldn't win. And for every one of your listeners, your jury, and I'm putting that in quotes, those people that you need to influence and persuade to get what you want, if they don't believe you, you can't win. So credibility is paramount. It comes before trust. It comes before compassion. It comes before empathy. And I think that it's something that people don't focus on enough, and they don't know that there are skills to help you build it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's dig into some of those skills and, and how it's built and maybe just to get our curiosity salivating. Could you share a particularly surprising, counterintuitive, fascinating discovery or nugget you've come about in your work and research here? Yeah. I think that the most important thing to recognize is that you can't prove something until you believe it. So for example, if one of your listeners is going for a job, they have to believe that they are the best person for this job, that they have the skills and the energy and the enthusiasm and the talent and the experience to do that job before they're going to make the prospective employer believe. And if you want more resources, if you want to raise, if you want to be on a certain team, the same is true. In the courtroom, people have often asked me, I defended doctors when their patients sued them. And people would often ask me, well, what do you do if you knew the doctor made a mistake? And the answer to that is, I would find something I could argue and believe in. I wouldn't say the doctor hadn't made a mistake because the jury would be able to tell that I didn't believe that. And so for your listeners, they need to believe first. And that means that you have to advocate to yourself, decide what it is you want to believe, and then collect the evidence so that you believe first. And then you can have the energy of that belief and bring that to the people outside of you that need to believe you and that you need to build that credibility with. Mm Mm-hmm. And that really does resonate in terms of, <laughs> I'm just thinking about in my own entrepreneurial journey, selling stuff. If I think, you know, <laughs> there are times like, I don't know if I'd pay that many thousand dollars for me as a keynote speaker. <laughs> I don't, I'm not so sure. And so uh, thankfully the agency <laughs> did the selling. So I didn't have to be in that tricky position. Yes. But then later when I really developed a, a training program, I thought, oh my gosh, we're getting some results here. You got to buy this if you want your team to be effective with the money you're spending on their salaries. You just got to. (laughs) You just absolutely spoke to it, right? When we can't advocate for ourselves well, we try to outsource it. And that works sometimes. But most of the time, it comes down to us at some point. And so you saw the difference between when you were sort of maybe lacking with a little bit of belief and that credibility with yourself and when you were full in. And it's a different energy and the results are different. Certainly. And it just feels good even being able to walk away if necessary in terms of like, well, you know, hey, they didn't have the budget and that's okay. You know, hopefully they can find someone else who who fits with their budget. I gave them some names and I'm not thinking, oh, I'm not second guessing myself like, oh, maybe I should have, you know, I don't know, you know? Yes, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You're not worried that the next thing isn't going to come along because you believe. And that belief takes a little bit of work. We can talk about the way that I coach and teach people to build that belief, but it's not like you're just going to wake up one day and believe. You know, it takes collecting evidence, which is what you did. You just described it perfectly. You did some training sessions. You saw that those training sessions worked. You collected evidence. The evidence fed your energy. So, one of the formulas that I use is credibility equals E squared, and it's energy times evidence. You collect evidence like you did. That evidence makes you feel that energy of confidence and competence and ability. And then the energy feeds the evidence. The evidence feeds the energy. So it's great when, like you, you have some pretty obvious evidence. Some of your listeners may be thinking, well, I don't have any evidence and what do I do then? And we can talk about that. 
Well, yes, I'm intrigued. So credibility equals E squared, which is energy times evidence. And in a way that like they're, they're like feeding each other. It sounds mm-hmm. like you, you get, you get some evidence and then you got more energy. Like, oh yeah. And, yes. then, and then with that energy, you, you might go ahead and discover some more evidence. So. Yeah. You, you create more evidence with that energy, you know, and you also look at things differently. So, you know, I work with a lot of women who are returning to the workforce or switching jobs, but oftentimes returning to the workforce after having been home with kids. And so they'll sometimes say to me, well, I don't have any evidence that I'm qualified for this job or that my entrepreneurial journey is going to go well. And so we look for evidence everywhere. So for example, if you're a stay-at-home mom and you manage the books for the house, well, then you're good at managing money and you're good with numbers and you can manage books. If you have dealt with children, you're probably really good at handling conflict. You're probably really good at managing schedules. You're probably really empathetic. And so there's all kinds of ways to take, you know, another example is I was a waitress all through college and law school. The amount of transferable skills that I could collect as evidence from waitressing, like I'm good with people. I keep things organized. I can think on my feet. I can be fast when I have to. I can manage difficult personalities in the kitchen. All of those things are evidence that I can do the thing that I want to do today. And it's just looking at the things that you've done and playing with it a little bit to allow it to be the evidence you need to feed the energy and then collect more evidence. And I'm intrigued here, Heather. I think sometimes when it comes to evidence, sometimes it's a matter of the evidence is there. You just don't even see it and you haven't taken the time to think about it, look at it, reflect, collect, put it in one place and go, oh, wow, I've got loads of, of experience and evidence. And other times I think you might go down that path and realize, oh, shoot, it really isn't there. How do we make a, a prudent distinction and not get sort of sucked into mental traps as we're playing this game? I think that you want to find something. You know, I in my first book, The Elegant Warrior, I have a chapter called Don't Fake It Till You Make It, Show It Till You Grow It. So there's always something. There's always some evidence. It might even be a scintilla of evidence, but it allows you to build upon it. So you're right. You might have absolutely no experience as an entrepreneur. I didn't. You know, in my work as an, a trial attorney, the cases were assigned to me. They just came in. I didn't have to do a lot of beating the pavement or cold calling or anything like that. So when I started my business, I really didn't have a lot of evidence that I would be a good entrepreneur. But I had evidence that I knew how to talk to people and that I was good at listening. And I knew that those skills were important skills for entrepreneurship in large part because I read a lot of books about being an entrepreneur. So I was able to work with the facts to make them into evidence, which is what we do in the courtroom all the time. Sometimes you're given really crappy cases and you have to do what you can with what you have to make some sort of argument to the jury. So with my clients, Pete, I will often say to my clients, pretend you're the attorney arguing for the fact that you do have something that will make you good for this job. It might not be everything you need because we don't want people out there pretending they're ready for things they're not ready for. But we do want them to believe in themselves enough to keep going. And that's where this looking around and really, I tell them to play with the evidence, you know, look at it from all directions. And one of the main things that I teach people to do is how else can I see this? What is another perspective that I can see this thing? And if you play with things enough, there's often something there that will allow you to begin, set the foundation for building that mountain of evidence. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that there's, as I am conceptualizing this, I'm thinking of almost two different skills. And one is credibility, advocacy, 
persuasion, and the other is is prudent decision making. Yes, because there are times when we ought not to convince ourselves to jump into something, and there are times that we ought to, but we don't because we're scared. And and I think I've heard it before. It's like, oh, I I should really probably get an advanced degree before I do that. And I think you really don't need that at all. That is just one clever masquerade of fear (laughs) and and delay that you just don't need to deal with. And other times it's like, you know, that is probably the prudent step that needs to precede your master plan. And so I, I just wonder, how do we navigate that smoothly without deceiving ourselves? Yeah. And I think that we really need to know what are the true qualifications. And it's a little bit different for men and women. I'm sure that one of your guests has shared that, I think it was a H. Packard, there was a study that showed that when there were certain qualifications for a job, if men only had a small amount of the qualifications, they would still apply. But women thought they needed all of the qualifications in order to apply. And so different people lean in different directions. Some people are going to apply for things when they have absolutely no evidence. Other people won't apply even though they have all of the evidence. We want to be realistic about it. You want to sort of step back. And this is where you need to really weigh what the actual qualifications are are. You want to talk to people who have done something similar to see how set in stone those qualifications are. You want to do your research. You know, you don't just jump into anything, especially in the courtroom. You want to make sure you know everything that could possibly happen. One of the things that I teach my clients is you want to know all of the ways in which you could lose to make you more likely to win. So we want to be aware of the ways that we might not meet the mark just yet, that we might have more work to do, that we might have more things to make us as qualified as we need to be. And that's part of the weighing of the evidence as well. Okay. You've also got a concept called belief triangles. Can you speak about this and any other super cool tools? Yeah. So the belief triangle, we've talked about one part of it, and that's the believing in yourself or believing in you. So if you are talking about applying for a job, the employer has to believe in you, that you have the skills and the experience and the education and the training to do the thing. That's one of the sides of the triangle. The other side is they have to believe you. And that means that when you make a promise, you will keep it. When you set an expectation, you will meet it. And when you can't, and there's times when we all can't because the things outside of our control, that is your opportunity to have a huge multiplication in credibility because that is your opportunity to own it, to own that you couldn't keep your promise, to own that you couldn't meet your expectation. There's research that shows that leaders who say, I don't know, to their teams, learn more from their teams and ultimately have more successful teams. So that side of the triangle is making promises, keeping them, setting expectations and meeting them. But when you can't, owning it and being willing to do that, it's a mix of vulnerability and authenticity, and it's extremely powerful. And then the third side of the triangle is the side that people often forget, and that's that people want to believe that you can help them. So, you know, someone might say, well, this person's very qualified for this position. And I, I trust them when they set a, set an expectation. I think that they'll meet it when they make a promise. I think they'll keep it, but I just don't think they get me and what I need and how I need this job to be done. And that is probably the most important piece because people don't really care if they can believe you and if they can believe in you, if you're not able to help them. So that piece is really important. And it's the part that most people skip. So as I understand it, you have credibility in the sense that they believe in you, like, okay, you know what you're doing. And they Mm -hmm. believe that you're truthful. You're going to do what you say you're going to do. And yet that's still insufficient because they don't believe 
you understand them. Can you give us some examples of that? Or you have their best interest in mind. So if mm-hmm. we're talking about in DEI, this happens often, right? Someone might believe that their employer is um, truthful. They might believe their employer runs a great company, but they might not believe that their employer sees them for who they are and is going to support them and give them opportunities and help them, which is that whole believe you can help them. So if I apply for a job and I come in and I have a great resume and I seem truthful, you know, I'll own that I don't have this particular degree, but I do have this thing, which is a transferable skill. But the employer doesn't feel as though I really understand their business and that I can bring my skills to their particular business. They don't believe that I can help them. It's so important. And it really comes down to one of the other C's, which is compassion. I describe compassion as seeing things from another's perspective and then putting that into action. When you're talking about believing that you can help them, you want to see things from the other person's perspective, what they actually need out of the relationship, and to make sure that you speak to that to build that part of your credibility. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, can you give us some examples of scenarios in which this plays out and what that looks, sounds, feels like in practice? Yeah. I mean, so one example is I do a lot of work with healthcare practices and sometimes people will go to doctors and these doctors have great CVs and tons of experience performing this operation. So there's believe in you. Great. And the doctor says, you know, I think I can help you, but there's a 10% risk of this and there's a 2% risk of this. And the patient believes that, but they ultimately don't believe that the doctor is kind or empathetic, or understands exactly why they want to have this surgery. Now, this particular patient, say, just wants to get back to playing with their grandkids. And all the doctor wanted to talk about is, oh, you'll be able to ski. That patient doesn't feel like this doctor can help them. And so therefore, there's a disconnect there. Another example is I work with a lot of women who are high up in various technology companies. And if they are talking to their employees and their employees have all of the abilities and all of the experience to serve them on their team, and they make a promise, they say, I'm going to be able to do this, and they do it by this date, but they don't seem to really understand what the leader wants and where the leader wants to go in the big picture. And there's someone who, no matter how much the leader says, I'm an early morning person and I need to have this meeting in the morning, they continuously try to push for doing things in the afternoon. They don't see things through their boss's perspective. There's a loss of credibility there. So that last piece really takes seeing things through the other person's perspective so that you can speak to that perspective as you build that credibility. Yeah, that's that's really that's really powerful. And I guess what I'm thinking about right now is carpet. <laughs> when, <laughs> okay. When 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 our when our first child was became a toddler, we thought, well, we just need a sort of a bigger zone in which he can crawl around and fall down and it's okay. So we went to get some carpet and, and as I was chatting, my, my wife, she's big into health and safety things. So I kept talking about how it's like, I want something that's really thick and cushy and this kid could just knock himself over and we don't even have to worry about it. Like a wobble. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and good non-toxic, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so he kept interpreting my statement of non-toxic as environmentally friendly. And, and those are, those are kind of different. And yeah. there's often a strong overlap. And so I always had to like overcorrect. It's like, I don't care if you plunder and harm Mother Earth <laughs> heinously, so long as my child isn't harmed. And so that's, I do care about the environment, if just listeners. But, but I kind of had to like overcorrect in order for it to be, I feel like I was being heard. And I felt a little silly because it's not what I believe in 
in my heart of hearts. That's a great example, Pete, because if that salesperson had said to you, I have a child or I have a niece and nephew, and I know exactly what it is that you're talking about. I see the world from your perspective. You're less concerned about the damage to the environment and more concerned about the damage to your child. And I have been there. I understand it. And here's the perfect carpet for you. Now they will have built that last piece of credibility. Yes. And it's interesting when you when you call it credibility, it feels right in terms of these three levers. Well, Heather, let's let's hear your official definition of credibility, shall we? So I am a huge freak about words. Right. Go back to the reading. And so I always look at what is the root of the word? You know, where did the mm-hmm. word actually come from? So, you know, a lot of people in business like to talk about trust and the root of the word trust is strong. And I think trust is fabulous and it creates strength in a relationship and strong trust should be strong, but strength takes time. Credibility, on the other hand, the root of that word is to believe. And so I believe that credibility is building belief and that belief makes the difference. And it's not only what allows you to advocate successfully, but really importantly, it's what allows you to turn the people around you into advocates for you. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that's excellent. And it really, it really gets you thinking in terms of, it takes a lot of hard work to develop strong competence and expertise and to you be responsive and, and own your commitments and follow through greatly. And yet it doesn't take that much work to convey that you're you're listening, you hear people, you relate to them. And yet it really is often missing. It's missing more that it is the thing that is missing most often. So I'll give you another example that's my, probably the best example that I just skip over. I have the curse of knowledge on this in the courtroom. Right. The jury, I want the jury to believe in me, to know that I am competent, that I am going to give them the proper evidence in the proper way. And the judge doesn't yell at me. And there's not a lot of objections and all that stuff. So I want them to believe in me and I want them to believe me. I will purposefully make promises in my opening that I know I can keep during the course of the trial so that they can say, I can believe her, but believe that I can help the jury. That means, P, I don't dilly-dally with my witnesses. I know they want to get home. I know, for example, sometimes I'm in the middle of a cross and it's lunchtime and the judge says, counsel, do you want to finish? And I look over at the jury and they're squirming and I say, no, your honor, I'd like to take my lunch break. I am trying to help them. And most importantly, I also try to help them with the way that I communicate with language. So my cases, as I mentioned, were medical cases. And because I was on the defense side, I always went second. So if the patient's attorney got up and started talking about osteomyelitis, I would see the jury's eyes glaze over and I knew that he was he or she was losing the jury. I would talk about bone infection because I wanted them to believe that I could help them to understand the case that I saw the case from their perspective, not mine. Osteomyelitis is a bone infection, but they're thinking, I don't understand what a word he's saying. I shouldn't be here. I don't know anything about this stuff. But when I say bone infection, all of a sudden they're like, I can trust this lady. And she makes me believe in myself that I can actually handle this case. And so that's that believe I can help them get through this case and actually do what they have sworn to do as jurors. Yeah, that's that's really good. And it's so funny because as I imagine a courtroom, I haven't spent a lot of time in them, thankfully, myself, 
<laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> lucky. <laughs> not that that's not awesome for, for lawyers. Uh, but if you're not a lawyer, you don't want to be in a courtroom very nope. often. Absolutely. So, <laughs> it's intriguing because, you know, you're not, you're not at liberty to, to bribe the jurors. That's pretty basic. Mm-hmm. And yet, you providing consideration for what words would they appreciate hearing? What is their food timing they would like? Like these little opportunities you have to, in a way, become a hero to them, and they're just going to like you. Uh, and that, that goes a long way. It goes such a long way. And the thing is, it is the key to advocating, right? Because I am advocating to the jury on behalf of my clients. And because the jurors have that connection with me, ideally, when they go back into the jury deliberation room, if there are some people who aren't so much down with what I've been arguing, they're advocating for me. They're saying, remember, Heather showed us this piece of evidence. And remember, she said this about this. That is what turns people around you into your advocates when you're able to see the world from their perspective and they believe that you can help them. They're much more likely your clients, your customers, your friends, your family. They will go out and advocate for you if you're able to get this piece right. Well, now you got me. (laughs) I have the most random associations for you, Heather. I hope. (laughs) I love it. Well, right now there's there's a, a scandal rocking the chess world, which this sucked me in because it occurred at the St. Louis Chess Club. It's like my buddy Brent, shout out Brent, he's a listener, actually showed me that facility. It's like I've been in there, in which this guy Hans Neiman Neiman was allegedly accused of cheating, although they don't have any hard evidence. And it's hard to even imagine how that's done in a live chess match, in which everybody's wanded down. But a group of, of four women just showed up. They said, we're the Hans girls, and, and we support him. And I just wonder, there's a whole nother story there. Like, who are these girls? Oh, my goodness. Why did they show up? How did he enthrall them? And does being awesome at chess now mean that you have... You're going to have groupies. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's sort of, um, in my keynotes, sometimes I talk about this I, when I customize it, depending on the audience, because there's a difference between raving fans and advocates. And it's a small difference, but it's an important one because it sounds like they're raving fans or fans, right? But do they have the tools to actually advocate for Hans. And I, I know a little bit about that story. I know Elon Musk has has chimed in. Mm-hmm. I sort of have been uh, keeping an eye on that as well. But I think that it's important because you want to not only turn the people around you into your advocates, but you want to give them the tools to advocate for you effectively. So if those women, for example, had evidence that they were presenting as they were standing outside the chess center and talking to the reporters and saying, here's a here's a piece of evidence that proves he couldn't do those things, then they would be advocates. But if they're simply cheering him on, they're raving fans. And if you are, if you own a business, you probably have some raving fans, but are they going out and encouraging people to use your services, to buy your products, to hire you? And there's a difference there. 
And it's an important difference for those of you that are in business or even for those of you who have jobs and you want a mentor or someone to advocate for you. You've got to give them the tools to do that well. You've got to give them the evidence. You've got to say, look at this thing I've done. Look at this raving review I got from one of our customers or clients. Look at the ROI that I received in this work that I did for the company. So there's a minor difference there. And I'm not sure whether Hans girls are making that difference, but I think it's worth, it's worth being aware of. Yes. I think I find that story so fascinating because for me, not that I passionately follow professional chess, but you know, I I played a lot of chess when I was younger and I saw the uh, Magnus Carlsen documentary, which is fantastic on Amazon Prime. I just kind of like the guys like, oh, that guy's, that guy seems normal and kind of like me and, and, <laughs> and dedicated to excellence. And I just sort of liked him. And then it was interesting how I found myself so torn and wanted to do all this research on the matter because to credibility, I was pondering, well, which, which one do I believe and why? And I was having sort of trouble teasing out the factors because I, I was I was really torn because I thought, well, statistically speaking, given their ratings difference, there's a 7% chance the underdog would win just normally. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like the Magnus that I've come to know from the mm-hmm. documentary to just uh, make accusations in an unfounded way. That's pretty unprofessional. So, but th- it's... <laughs> It was so weird. I was I was sucked into it like it's a reality TV drama. And I don't know if you have any commentary, Heather, on who's being believed here and why. Even the way that you just phrased it, Pete, it really shows a lot of things about credibility. Oftentimes we start with what we want to believe. Yes. And then we collect evidence to support that thing. And so if you, having watched that documentary, if you were a huge fan, then it sounds like you're a little bit more likely to believe him and maybe looking at Hans with a little bit less belief, a little bit more suspicion than you would be if you were like me, completely new to the world of chess and just read about it in Morning Brew. And so we often do have things that we want to believe or that we're used to believing and that we have a habit of believing. And because of that, we just keep collecting evidence to support that thing. And so part of this, and you can make it into a game, but to look at how could I look at this differently and where is there evidence to support that other thing? I mean, listen, ultimately, Pete, you know, I I say this to people all the time and people don't always like it, but it's true. In my cases, Every single person who testifies gets up into the witness stand, swears to tell the truth, and then tells completely different stories. And it's up to the jury to decide what is true. And that makes truth a little bit interesting, right? Because every single one of them believes, or at least you think they believe, they swore to tell the truth, believes that they're telling the truth. And the jury decides what is true. Well, you get to decide what is true for you. And you can do that by weighing the evidence that you collect. But you want to be sure that you're aware that you have biases as you collect that evidence and try to, if not be aware of them, even go beyond that and counter them a little bit. Yeah, that's that's very well said. I think for me, it was that there was a pretty good case to be made on both sides, thus creating a, a real mystery. That and, and then in so doing, with the reality TV stuff joke, it, it's like there is there's a tension and a curiosity that can suck you in. And that's why there's so many shows about courtroom proceedings. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, because it's all a matter of perspective, you know, and and what how you see things makes a huge difference. You know, Wayne Dyer had that quote, change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. But it's really quite true. You might remember, I think it was in 2015, the white and gold dress. Was it a white and gold dress or was it a black and blue dress? Do you remember that mm-hmm. meme on the internet? It was huge. And people would fight about that to the death, right? It's black and blue. No, it's white and gold. And it really just depended on your perspective. Scientists afterwards did um, some research on why actually people saw it differently. And it had a lot to do with shadows and what kind of assumptions your brain and your eyes make based on your experience. So, so many of our beliefs are based on our experience. And when we're aware of that, we can start to think, is this something that I want to believe in? And if it's not, how can I collect some evidence to counter it? Mm -hmm. All right, Heather, good stuff. Anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? No, I think, I mean, listen, it's something I could talk about forever, but every day you are building credibility in one way or another. And so to be aware that you're doing it and that you can do it effectively will make you better at it. All right. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, so I was you know, thinking about my favorite quote, and I had to go with the one that's sitting here on my desk. It is attributed to Viktor Frankl, though I don't know that it's clear that it's from him. And the quote is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I am big on this idea of choice, Pete. And so I love that quote because I think we get to always choose our response to things. Uh-huh. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yeah, my favorite study right now is out of Yale. It's relatively recent, I'd say within the past two years. And it's a study that shows that you can tell more about a person's emotion from their tone of voice than their facial expressions and their body language combined. I love it for a number of reasons. I'm a little bit obsessed with tone of voice in general, but I love it because it encourages people to do more listening and listening is what helps you to become a stronger advocate. Okay. And a favorite book? I mean, I think Golden, the one that I mentioned before, that is um, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise, that really had a huge impact on me. I am really focused on listening to silence and making space for quiet in my day as the result of that book. All right. And a favorite tool? I like Insight Timer. I meditate. Um, That's one of the ways that I'm able to sort of create that space and able to respond rather than react. So Insight Timer is a great app for that. And the other one that I like that a lot of people don't know about is um, it's called Marco Polo. And it's a way to correspond with people. It's like video text messaging. And I like it for a bunch of reasons. I use it with some of my coaching clients. We're able to sort of go back and forth during the day and see each other's faces and hear each other's tone of voice as we talk about things. And I also like it because it's a great way to talk to my parents and the people I love and save those conversations forever. Mm-hmm. And a favorite habit? For me, it's early, getting up early. So I know there's a lot of people who are not morning mm-hmm. people. For me, the first hour that I'm awake when I meditate and I do my morning reading and I enjoy my coffee before I work out and walk my dog, that hour is invaluable. And that habit started in law school. I would get up even earlier. I used to get up at four o'clock in law school because I knew that it was the time that I had before clients would start to need me. And now it's just my favorite thing about the day. And it's one that I would not want to break. Mm-hmm. And is there a key nugget you share that really connects and resonates with folks? They quote it back to you often. 
Yeah, I think that the idea that you can turn the people around you into your advocates, if you're only willing to see things from their perspective and then speak to that perspective is really exciting for people. Because first of all, it makes them recognize that they can be their own best advocate. And second of all, they recognize that they don't have to do it alone. And they can actually get people on board to be advocating for them when they're not even in the room. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So Heather Hansen Presents is the website. It's Hansen is spelled with an E-N. And there you've got links to all of my talks, to the consulting that I do, to the coaching that I do, my books, and to my podcast. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I think I would challenge you today to start advocating for yourself, your ideas, your services, your, the people around you, start to see how you do at asking for what you want in a way that makes people actually give it to you and see how well you do at that. Because some people think that they're good at it and they're not as good as they think they are. Others just don't even try. So no matter which of those groups you fall into, you will learn a little bit something if you try to do that today. All right, Heather, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much credibility everywhere you need it. Thank you so much, Pete. Have a great night. I really appreciate Heather's perspective about believing in yourself first in order to have that credibility to advocate elsewhere. And if you don't believe (laughs) the story, to find a new story that you can get behind. Great stuff from Heather. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items that we've mentioned are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP807. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.